Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. I know you'll enjoy this month's episode. We've very much appreciated Dr. Dale and his special guest over the last few months and the great insights that are provided on quail and quail conservation. This month is no exception. Dr. Dale welcomes Rick Snipes of the Snipes Ranch in Stonewall County. Let's go to Dale now. Good morning, Gary. It's great to be with you all this month. I've got a special show for you. I'm on location on the Snipes Ranch in Stonewall County, Texas, northwest of Aspermont. And I'm going to be visiting with uh, Rick Snipes today, who's a a big figure in quail management in Rolling Plains. And uh, I mentioned when we did the Ricky Lennox podcast about standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, Rick's about six foot seven, yes. six foot seven, and uh, so that's a giant in my world and a very quotable individual. I think our listeners are going to uh, very much enjoy visiting with him. Rick, let's start off with just uh, give us a little biography of yourself. Tell us where you were raised at and how you wound up out of here in West Texas. Well, I was raised in uh, northwestern South Carolina <clears throat> and uh, had a couple of uncles uh, who were bird hunters and sort of you heard the phrase shade tree mechanics and they were sort of shade tree bird dog trainers and I would traipse around with them and sort of got hooked on the game. I didn't get to hunt much except on Saturdays all my young life because I was playing ball the rest of the time and uh, and that's how how I came came to the game. I really unlike a lot of people I came to the game of bird hunting through dogs rather than through shooting. And although I love to shoot, or did. And uh, so I spent my time in South Carolina and, and grew up and went to college at Davidson College in North Carolina and had a business in Charlotte. And we lived in, right across the border in South Carolina. And so I would hunt a great deal in the lower part of the state, the storied country of the low country of South Carolina where bird hunting was probably had more stories written about quail hunting that are set in low country South Carolina than any other place in the world. So that's where I hunted. And uh, uh, I was invited in 1980 by a friend of mine who lived in Plano to come out here and bird hunt. And we came to this ranch, which he had under lease and hunted quail. And I saw more quail in two and a half days than I had probably seen in the last two and a half years. So it turned my head, so to speak. And he asked me if I would like to get on the lease with him. And I said, I certainly would. So for the next 13 years, I would uh, bring my dogs four or five times a year and come out and spend four or five days and hunt Bob White quail on the what was then called the IOU Ranch, owned by the Mitchell family, Mitchell Estate. And, uh, and that was in 1980. And in 1993, I was approached by the real estate agent. The family was in some dispute. And to make a long story short, I ended up buying a ranch with three partners, 
in 93 and bought them out in 98, I think it was. And, um, and began some quail management as early as 1994. I mean, we did some plantings of native grasses. We did an application of spike on a 1,700-acre pasture that was pretty thick with shinry. And so the minute we bought it, we started trying to improve it. And then in 2001, <clears throat> we moved out here. It's sort of a long story as to how we got out here all together and probably not worth mentioning, but the, the, the long and short of it is here we are. And we've been here for 20 years and we have worked diligently on, on bringing this ranch to what we hope will be its, or is its full potential. You know, we sort of look at ownership as ownership of a property as, as when you buy the property like this, you assume the burden and the responsibility of stewardship because you're not going to own it after you die. Somebody else is. And, and so the way I was brought up and the way I feel about things, it's my obligation to leave it better than I found it. And so it's been a great deal of fun doing that. And, and I don't know that we've added a bird to the population, but we sure have made it easier to hunt. We sure have made it more beautiful. And, uh, and we have a lot of birds. And your, your efforts have been uh, recognized and rewarded through several awards that you've received. I know the ranch has received the Texas Parks and Wildlife Lone Star Land Stewardship Award. Um, you received, uh, you were in contention for a Purdy P-U-R-D-E-Y like the shotgun award about 15 years ago. And I had the chance to be a judge on several of those properties and, uh, you were, it was yours and Boone Pickens were the only two in North Texas. And you kind of got slighted, in my opinion, because uh, I've heard your ranch, I've heard you refer to it, or somebody referred to it as the Augusta National of, of Quail Ranches. Now, I'm not a golfer. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are. But when you say the Augusta National, as a non-golfer, tell me what we're talking about there. Well, Bubba Wood, I think, and, and Joe Crafton and a friend of mine back in Charlotte sort of named it that, and it's sort of the best of the best. It's the prettiest, it's the most challenging, it's the place everybody wants to go. And it represents quail hunting at a phenomenal best. Uh, you know, I know that one year in 2015 or 16, I forget which year it was, we sort of set out to see, we had a really good morning. You know, normally in that year and the year before, we would find 30, 35 coveys of birds in the mornings. And I, I think that year, we that particular day and two and a half hours or so, we moved over 40 cubbies. So we decided to go again that afternoon and see how many we could move. And of course, you're not shooting all these birds. And all these birds aren't getting pointed. As you know from your own experience, you'd get one cubby pointed. For every cubby you pointed and shot, you saw four or five others. And that's what it was. But we saw 92 cubbies of birds wow. in about five or six hours of a day. That's absolutely abnormal and doesn't happen maybe once in a lifetime. We may never see that again, but it's quite the place and, and it's pretty in that the topography is from 1700 feet to about 2100 feet above sea level. So you have a lot of roll to the country and you have some startling vistas. And I remember there have been many times on this ranch where I've had a dog point and the wind was blowing the grasses and I had to say to my friends, y'all shoot. I just got to look, mm -hmm. just got to watch this. And 
you know, that's a big part of it. Well, I know our mutual friend, Dr. Fred Guthrie, who you worked with quite a lot uh, over the years, and his his uh, phrase, usable space. In other words, try to make every inch of your property usable for a quail year-round. And I don't know of any place that I've been on that satisfies that uh, definition better than your place. I think you could just stop regardless of what which direction the wind is blowing and take off from any particular spot on the ranch and be in quail pretty quick. So, again, that's uh, quite a testament to the to your management. Now, you started out with a great piece of property Absolutely. being a Knobscot sand and the Shinry, Shinnok, and so forth. So, uh, uh, and for those of you that are wondering, there, there's always some soil types in certain areas. It might be a Sarita series in South Texas. It might be a, a Deval series up, up in Southwestern Oklahoma, but this Knobscot, if, you, if you're lucky enough to find some Knobscot soil, uh, that's a great piece of property to try to have. But it does have some liabilities uh, and we'll talk about one of those in a minute, uh, being sandburrs, but uh, you've you've attacked those as well. Um, so again, you came from South Carolina. That's where Havila Babcock was from. Am I correct? Havila Babcock, okay. he was. And when you talk about the usable space and time that Fred promulgates or, or promoted, uh, you know, I interpreted that to mean that, you know, a Bob White needs country that serves its purposes all seasons of the year. In other words, it just doesn't need a ragweed feed patch in uh, December. I was mentioning some of the awards that you've received, and uh, I guess the most recent one being the Boone Pickens Lone Star uh, Sportsman Award, which you received about, what, three years ago? Yes, yes, sir, in Dallas. And for those of you that have been to that banquet, uh, you know Rick's comments were spot on and, and just right, and he's He's always got a, a cheery attitude. I say always. When I've been around him, he kind of lifts the, the room up when he walks in. And Rick, I know you've got a couple of uh, words of inspiration on the steering wheel of your pickup that uh, that always intrigue me. Won't you share those with us? Well, uh, these words come from some, from from some of the harder life experiences we all have. And the words on my steering wheel, are, the first one on the top is the word entitled, and it has question marks after it. And that's to remind me that I'm not entitled to anything, that life doesn't owe me a single thing. I've heard people out here say, well, boy, we sure are due a rain. And I think, well, not really. You know? And so it reminds me to the next word on the steering wheel is gratitude. And it reminds me that while I'm not entitled to anything, the corollary to that is I should be grateful for everything. <clears throat> like Cicero said, Roman philosopher, that gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but it's the father of all the others. So I've set myself a hard task in life, which is to always feel that I'm not entitled to anything and always feel that I'm grateful for anything. I don't get that way every day, but I try, and that's about all you can do. You know, hard heads like me need more reminding than, than most people. Well, I think that's just an innovative way of, of keeping a couple of very important keystone principles in front of you. You're going to be in that pickup in and out several times and always need reminders, it seems like. Rick, I've enjoyed, uh, in our time together, I've enjoyed some of the ways that you, that you express particular principles or whatever. And uh, I'll always remember you talked about the two lines in quail management. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, you're talking about in quail numbers? Yes. 
Well, I always, I had a friend, uh, not a friend, I had an acquaintance out one day and he was, I took him hunting and he said, how many, uh, how many birds you got? And I said, well, you know, we got a pretty good many. I said, we found, you know, we haven't been hunting long. We already found four or five cubbies. He said, yeah, but how many do you have? And I said, well, the way I look at quail numbers is there's a line and below that line is not enough. And above that line is enough. And way above that is more than enough. And we've been fortunate enough on this ranch to be, always be, with exceptional years, somewhere between enough and more than enough. And I, die, I hate or I fight the, the, the pressure to quantify my hunt like deer hunters do. You, you think a guy, if he doesn't kill a 191 buck, he hadn't had a good day. And I refused to let a number tell me how much fun I had. So I know we've had over two birds an acre on this ranch at least a couple of years when you flew, when you flew helicopter surveys. And, and of course, that's too many birds to count, and that's way more than enough. And I anticipate that that's sort of where we'll be this year. We'll have way more than enough. But that's the way I look at it, and I try not to get too bound up in the quantitative aspects of bird hunting. If you had 20 things that influence your quail management, I always said that I would take control of the grazing and brush management and you could have the other 18. Because when you do that, you control soil disturbance and therefore you influence plant succession. And when you influence and you do brush control, you not only are talking about escape cover, loafing cover uh, for quail, but you're also talking about managing your water. As you manage brush and you take out some brush, you free up water. And that water can grow grass or that water can grow forbs instead of brush. So those two, I think, have the, have the biggest influence. There are a lot of other things that people do, a lot of things that we do, but those two things I think are primary. If you don't do them, you're wasting your time. And uh, one of the questions that, that comes from that discussion is how much brush to leave? How much do I need? I've often used the softball technique to say you ought to be able to throw a softball from one quail house to the next. You've got another way of, uh, from your hunting experiences, of kind of explaining what that threshold should be. What is that? Well, you know, first of all, I think your softball deal is dead on. And I think a practical explanations of how much brush you need, that's the best of all. I know that Fred Guthrie in his usable space and time talked about brush and grass and he went on further to introduce the concept of slack and all this really a, is an academic way of saying what you said. And the way I look at it <clears throat> is if you're walking up to a cubby rise and assume that two guys are shooting, if both guys have clear shots on every cubby rise, you don't have enough brush. You need enough brush so that one guy always gets handcuffed or blocked out. And that gives the birds a way out. And, and more importantly, or as importantly, that brush furnishes shade. And out here, you hear people talk about forbs and you hear talk about grasses and you hear talk about this and you hear talk about that. And you really don't ever mention any, hear anybody talk too much about the, the effect of heat or thermal on these birds. And I think our 
amount of brush furnishes our birds some shade, which gives them protection in hot weather and also give them protection in snow, ice. It gives them a, a under that brush gives them some escape and some refuge. And I think so, that's why you want to be careful. Sometimes people will get carried away with the brush control, especially if, if they've got more of an interest in livestock than in quail. And then you get either in a really bad, hard drought for two years, or you have a snow apocalypse like we had in February, and that little bit thicker brush uh, not only serves a thermal refuge, but that's where the quail are going to kind of stay hold up, stay away from the Cooper's hawks and that kind of thing. Too. Absolutely, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And our birds uh, survived the uh, snow snow apocalypse last year without any, I don't believe, any harm. We we had feed out as part of our uh, part of uh, being a, a partner in the the effort with the FDA. Medicaid feed requires us to have feeders out, and we keep feeding them all all all, all year so that the birds know where the feed is when hard times come. They don't use them as a regular basis. I mean, they've got so much natural feed here that the birds rarely go to the feeders, but they do when times are tough. <clears throat> and so we hunted a day after, a week or so after the hard snow and that 10 days of brutal weather. And my dogs pointed seven big coveys of birds in an hour and a half. The birds that we shot were in great condition. We had no weak flyers. And then we did our spring whistle call counts. The average number of roosters heard was over 12. And I think, most of that can be attributable to the amount of brush we have. I really do. And it goes back into, to the old carpenter's maxim, which is, you know, measure twice and saw once. And all you have to do is say, you know, it takes a hell of a lot longer to grow a mesquite tree than it does to grub one. And that's what we try to do. So our, our brush management, we've got a pasture up here uh, that I could point out to you, is our brush management to, from the time we start until it's the way we want it, probably is a five or six year process. We just take a little bit out and then we hunt it. And then we might take a little bit more out. And that's something that and a lot of folks, a little more. Yeah. A lot of folks in South Texas, I guess, don't appreciate sometimes because their brush grows back. You make a mistake, five years later you got brush kind of thing. Up here you make a big mistake, it's twenty five to thirty five years later. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I've made every mistake in the world on this ranch. I mean, that's how you know what works, I guess, is you mess up. And one of the mistakes I made, I sprayed a 300-acre pasture aerially. And the guy called me. It was really thick with mesquites, you know, chest high, head high, just thick. And he called and said, we need to spray today. I think if we spray today, we can get a 60% kill. Well, we got a 100% kill. And that was awful. You know, it took 12, 15 years before that pasture was really usable for quail again. So if I had ever had any doubts about how to do it, that taught me, <laughs> go slow, go slow. Well, you mentioned uh, your work earlier with spike herbicide, which is a pelleted herbicide. It is the herbicide of choice for treating oaks, shin oak in this case. And I'm never forget, uh, I was probably here on this ranch with you maybe late 80s, something like that. And you had done the, the checkerboard approach, what's technically called a variable rate pattern. 
and it was just beautiful. I mean, you had roughly 25% of the shinry that wasn't treated, 50% uh, that got a kind of a half rate, and then 25% that got a full rate. And you could just see those checkerboards out there, which uh, I think they're probably still visible and not quite as vivid as they were then. But um, uh, you now they would use that. They'd use a, a computer, basically a GIS, on a spray plane to be able to program it in and do that. But you did it in a little bit more novel way to achieve the same result. What was that? Well, it wasn't that I did it. It was Carlton Britton, who was a professor of range management at Tech, and he came down. And he had it laid out on GPS the way we all wanted to do it. He and I spent a lot of time talking about it. And actually, the pilot was up in the air, and the pilot was spraying, and the pilot's wife was actually on the microphone, and she said, on, off, on, off, on, off, for probably three hours. Huh. And that's how it got done. And to this day, I believe that's the way to do it. Not, not, not on, off, on, off, but checkerboarding. Because like you said, you get some 100% killed, some doesn't get killed at all. And we've used it since, and we've used it for different purposes to open up lanes that we want to travel. And so that's just, you're spraying a, a line. And I don't like that nearly as well, because the one negative you have with spike, first of all, the positive is spike is going to grow grass like you cannot imagine. So if you need nesting cover and you've got shinry, you put some spike down and you're going to have grass. You'll have grass before the shinry is actually dead. But it also, it also sets back the forbs. So wherever we have done lines of spike, we've gone in later and done some wintertime disking, which generate, regenerates the forbs. So, you know, everything has a plus and minus. The plus of spike is it opens up things, it grows grass, the negative is it has a tendency to set back your forbs. So you have to deal with that. I want to talk about a couple of particular plant species that, uh, again, the one that, that I've learned some cool things from you. First one being bull nettle. Oh, yeah. So uh, and for those of you who don't know what bull nettle is, it's on deep sands, white, showy white flower, but you don't want to walk through it with shorts on because it will set your legs afire. Uh, but you found some uh, interesting quail virtues for the plant. Well, you know, the first thing was I, I kept finding this giant seed in the crops of my birds that we shot, and it's big as a red bean. And I sent it to you, and you sent it to A&M, and they came back and, and said, you know, this is bull nettle seed, and its nutritional properties are over the moon. Said, you know, per for its weight, it has more nutritional benefit than anything we got on this ranch, practically. And, and, and I didn't know what it was. And, and uh, you knew what it was, but you didn't know what good it was. And when A&M told us, then we've learned that we've got a plan on this ranch that we can't do anything about, but it has a great benefit. And the, and the wonderful part about it is, that, is in the fall, it dies. You don't have the longer, you know, you don't have the stinging effects anymore. It's, it's gone. And you've just got the seeds laying on the ground. And I've often told people I had Joe Crafton's son out, and I said, you know, Reeve, you ought to, peel this and eat this. It tastes just like a cashew. And he went, oh, I don't know about that. And I said, well, eat it. And he said, well, I don't know if it'll hurt me or not. And he uh, took a bite and he chewed it up. And, and he said, well, I hope I did it right. I said, well, you don't have any choice now. It's, it's gone. But I always do. And you peel it and it's pure white. And you eat it. It tastes just like a nut. It's really sort of unbelievable. But it's a great plant. 
kind of exemplifies Ralph Waldo Emerson's idea that uh, what is a weed but a plant whose virtues have yet to be discovered. I agree 100%. And we in the quail world, we have to take that approach quite often. Uh, you've got some, these deep sands, when we've got weather conditions right, like we do this year, you grow some just incredible legumes. Uh, quail pea, the trailing wild bean is, is a good example. I don't know if you've got much of it this year, but some, year, some years are wild bean years. I know you've Four or five years ago, you had them everywhere. Food is, is rarely a weak link uh, for you in this kind of a country. I, I, I agree. And this year, I could take you and show you in pastures. The one that catches your attention is partridge pea, the yellow flower that, that blooms in August. And it is amazing where we have partridge pea. And it's come because of a technique that we employed, which was we have some pastures where we just had our blue stem. Great nesting cover, but it's just too thick. So we shredded wide strips through it and then went back and lightly disked those strips. So now you can look out, that was last spring, so now you can look out on that pasture and it's blue stem full of yellow blooms, which are partridge pea. And so that's a little example of manipulating it, but we did so much disking last winter and we got to March and it was end of March and I hadn't rained, didn't rain all winter, as you know, and we got to the end of March and I told Lance, I said, oh my goodness. I said, boy, did I make a mistake. I said, I just turned Raul loose and said, disc all you want to, whatever you think. And we probably, we disc probably a, over a hundred miles of strips. And I told Lance, I said, we may have so many grass burrs that we can't even hunt. And then the 1st of April, it started raining. And the only way to truly, effectively combat grass burrs is to have plants that outcompete them for the moisture. So when it started raining in April, I relaxed. And it rained in April and May and June and July and August and everything else. And we don't have any grass burrs. What we have is tremendous forb explosion which is what we had hoped for, but we just got lucky. You know, we got lucky, it rained. And so we've got, we've got right in all those strips now, we have Illinois bundle flower, we have prairie acacia, we have ragweed, we have croton, we have trailing wild bean, we have partridge pea, all over them, instead of grass burrs. So we, we dodged that bullet and we really got very lucky. So now let's talk about when we don't dodge that bullet. And we do have grass burrs big time because these sandy soils like this, I mean, especially if they've had a lot of soil disturbance, again, your disking can backfire. Right. Or if they've been stocked too heavily, you got a lot of grass burrs. And I understand I've got the quail forecast for most of the blue quail country this year is not good. And uh, the worst spot seems to be where I've got two quail leases at, out <laughs> in Crane County, and I understand grass burrs are everywhere. But uh, you've kind of, I mean, a lot of people have used boots, but you use some innovation uh, to fight the grass bird problem as far as booting your dog. So share that with us quickly. Well, we use inner tubes, motorcycle inner tubes, and, and we make a really great boot. Uh, it's, it's, it, the Lewis dog boots are probably the, the gold standard in protection for your dog's feet, but I don't like them very much because they, they really abuse your dog's toes. You'll have raw toes from, so we make our boots with an open end. Uh, using the inner tubes, and they and they don't they don't hurt the dog's feet, 
They're easy on the dog's feet, and they're a very effective way to combat grass burrs. We normally, if it's a, normally we only have to move to front feet, and because uh, that's where all the pressure hits. And you and I made a video. Right. I think it's on the quailresearch.org website on not only how to put the boots on, but how to make them. And, and they work. And it's sort of like the Peter principle of we all reach our level of incompetence. And I was out in a diner in Gale, Texas, and we were sitting around, and a guy came through the door, and he said, are you Rick Snipes? And I said, well, I guess I am. And he said, I saw you on your dog boots, and this, that, and the other. And I told a friend of mine, I said, well, of all the things I ever did in my life, I became famous for booting dogs. So <laughs> I guess I reached my level of incompetence. Well, Steve Snell, Gun Dog Supply, is also on our board of directors. And Steve told me not long after that, he said, I wish y'all hadn't made that that uh, video because my sales of boot, dog boots was going down because they were using that one. So, again, uh, that's available on our website. And if you, if you need to find it, we'll uh, email me, and I'll uh, send that to you. Rick, again, you served as president of the Quail Research Foundation for the first 10 years, and what would you list as some of the major accomplishments during that time? I think there are a number of them. I mean, one is the outreach that you did, uh, opening up the ramps to people to see the effect of different quail management tools, et cetera. Uh, but I think one of the signal achievements will be the research that we've done on uh, parasitic infections of birds. I think when it's all said and done, that will be the signal achievement of, of my time as board president. I think you've found some other wonderful things. The, uh, uh, the fact that you guys have figured out that quail aren't monogamous and they do nest multiple times is a wonderful explanation of the springboard effect that birds have when they come back from bad years, like A.S. Jackson's shown, you know, when, they, when it starts raining after a drought, watch out, you've got a lot of birds. And I think that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing that you've discovered. But I think that the, uh, the treatment of parasites as a way to uh, effectively help your bird populations is a great thing. I don't think that you know, I've got my own opinions about it, and I've got a, a lot of don't knows yet, just like everybody does. But I do know that my neighbors didn't have any birds last year. I mean, one of my neighbors is a barefoot Bob as a guide, and he told me his best day last year was three coveys of birds. And he hunts right around me. I had one neighbor who hunted three days and did not see a quail, and he's two miles from me. And yet we could go out and find 20 coveys of birds. No, we didn't do that every day, but our, and most of the time we only hunt in the afternoons and our average afternoon would be, well, seven to 10 cubbies. You know, usually eight or nine. Had a best afternoon of 12 or 14. The worst afternoon we had was six one afternoon. So that's, you know, you're hitting around there and on that line of how many birds you have, I would put maybe another little shading to that line. I said, that's barely enough, <laughs> but we had enough to have fun. We'll go and every dog will get in birds and everybody will get some shooting. There weren't very many limits shot, but everybody could shoot eight or ten birds in an afternoon if they wanted to. But with, as you said, no problem. We've we've invested we as long as in Park City's quails invested a lot of time, effort, supporting Dr. Kendall up there at uh, Wildlife Toxicology Lab for the development testing, and we're all anxiously awaiting uh, the day when we can get our hands on it and do our own trials. Rick, uh, to kind of wind things down a little bit, I'm going to ask you a couple specific questions. 
what's been you've been hunting out here 50 years 40 yep. 40 what's what was the best year you ever experienced? oh the best year i ever saw was 2015 and 16 i have difficulty separating them you know i know that in i think it was 15 when we had and you mentioned uh running wild bean trailing wild bean we had an explosion of that in certain pastures so unbelievably it concentrated the quail because they want if, if you've got that they're going to eat it and then that year um Tom Davis actually wrote an article about a setter of mine called named Tinkerbell. And in it, he mentioned that we found 44 coveys in two and a half hours in one afternoon. And he said, that's not a misprint. And he goes, and that goes along with the 30 or 35 coveys we moved that morning. What Tom didn't mention was we moved that 44 coveys of birds on a half section. That's ridiculous. And we did that four or five times a year because in that pasture, we had a lot of running wild bean, Texas quail pea. So I, you know, I've seen great years. 1982 was wonderful. 1987 was phenomenal. In my opinion, up until 15 and 16, 1992 was better than any of them. 1997 was fabulous and it was unique in that we had no rain until late July and August. So we had birds, and we found a lot of birds in November and December, but we really didn't shoot any birds until after Christmas because it was all a late hatch. Uh, and then you started the Texas Quail Index. <clears throat> what year was that, 01, 03? 01, I think. And, and we started keeping records. And I remember the first year, our, our whistle call counts were 4.8 roosters per stop. And I know that for the next nine years, starting in 01, we moved an average of five cubbies of birds an hour for nine years. Of course, that included 05, which was a blowout year, fabulous year. And, uh, but still, that indicates a, a strong, consistent uh, pattern of, of bobwhite populations, but nothing to my mind. I'm, I've never seen anything like 15 and 16. How about you? Yeah, it was the best, best two years that I've seen in my 50 years of quail hunting. Yeah, I've hunted everywhere. Never seen anything like it. You know, just, uh, I know my setter, it was her first year, and she pointed in November, and my friends, Pat and Andy, were with me, and I said, y'all go ahead and shoot. These birds are way ahead of her, and I'm going to stand here with her. Well, before the hooting and hollering was over, five cubbies had left, and Tink and I hadn't moved a muscle. Mm -hmm. We were still standing there, you know, and... Oh, not many people ever live to see that. No, but sometimes referred to as rolling thunder. And Absolutely. I've heard of people seeing seven coveys. I think five is the most that I've ever seen. But it's I I tell people that I'm so glad I was alive and hunting in 2015, 16. I don't know if I'll ever see it like that again. But like Martin Luther King, I've climbed the mountain and I've seen the other side. I couldn't agree with you more. Never seen anything like it. It was the darndest thing. You know, uh, you know it was the, the land of the one dog hunt. Right. I had a friend say, why, aren't, why don't you have two dogs? I said, well, you want me to show you? And he says, yeah. So, okay, you got a dog here, point it, a dog here, point it. Shoot these. I said, go on, shoot the others. I'll pick them up with the lab. Well, it took about three or four times and he was worn out. He said, I can't keep this up. I said, I didn't think you could. Mm -hmm. And, you know, pointing birds faster than you can shoot them. And that's ridiculous. You know, we don't have to have that many birds. But it sure was wonderful to see it.
Well, let's talk about our partners, our dogs, and I know you've had a lot. Uh, who, who is there a favorite among the dogs you've had over the last 40, 50 years? Well, I guess the favorite's the dog that made me, which was a dog called Lone Star Brisket. And I think, you know, I've all, an old man told me about Brisket. He goes, well, you just have to have one that's tough enough to survive all your mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually made a real bird hunter out of me. He was a fabulous bird dog. He was good on... Fabulous on quail, fabulous on rough grouse, fabulous on huns and sharp tails. But I've had some great ones. I had brisket and his son, and I've, you know, I've probably, I counted the other day, and I think I've probably had around eight to ten what could really be classified as truly great bird dogs. And probably another 15 or 20 who could be classified as really good. But I've had a lot of dogs over a lot of years. Mm -hmm. And all my dogs have had one thing in common, and that is they got to go hunting. And the only thing that makes a dog is taking them hunting. And you have to have patience <clears throat> to let them develop at their own pace. And you have to have land where you can do it, and birds that take in point. Kind of like Delmer Smith said, you know, <clears throat> think about a bird dog, birds have its name. And they got to have birds. Probably the best Texas bird dog I ever saw was a dog I had called, named Skarky. Called him that because he had a scar on his face where he was bitten by an older dog when he was a puppy. But he was probably the easiest dog I ever hunted with. Never had a whistle. Never had a shock collar. Found birds like it was no tomorrow. And never raised your blood pressure. Yeah. Just unbelievable. Floated over the country. And if there was a bird in that pasture, you can bet that he found it. And. He hunted a pasture behind Gary Penalto, who was a dog trainer, had him in North Dakota, and he called me. He says, Rick, I don't know what to do about this dog of yours. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, all he does is run 100 yards out in front of the horse and stop, put his tail up in there. He said, we can't get him to run. He's too busy pointing. And he had a dog called Texas Trail Rider, who had won the National Field Trial Championship in Grand Junction. He goes, we had Trail Rider out. We had some new country, and we ran him through it, and he pointed two bunches of hunts and chickens. And we said, well, we got some birds in this country. And Skip, who was with him, said, well, we got Snipes, pointer pup here, let's run him through here and give him some exercise. He said, well, we put your dog out, and he went through right behind Trail Rider and pointed eight bunches of chickens. And we looked at each other and said, holy smoke. And that's the kind of dog he was. Mm -hmm. And you don't train that. You just get blessed right. with that. Right. That's, that's what happens. happens. Well, we're about out of time, Rick. Um what what is there anything else that we've, we've well, you know missed? what I'd like to say is I, I am so grateful for what Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, its board of directors, has done, what Park City's Quail has done. I mean, Joe Crafton and, and that crowd in Dallas has has shown that sportsmen working on their own can have a big influence on their game without having to depend on anybody else. They can do it themselves. And, you know, everything, every good thing we've talked about, they fund it. Right. We've had individuals who, who gave us money. Tex Moncrief, uh, the Mellon Foundation has given us money. A.V. Jones, the Jones family has given us money. But most of the money that we've had that's been devoted to quail research has come from Park City's quail. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. And the, they have they've provided a way for sportsmen to influence the game that they love. And I think sportsmen everywhere, not only us in West Texas, 
Bush Fortune all over owe them a, a debt. And I mean, if I begin or end this segment, it would be with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I always refer to Park Cities as the wind under our research wings. And because you got it. They've uh, buoyed us for ever since. We, we were just fortunate to come into existence the same year they did, and so they kind of adopted us, and we've been able to maintain uh, hopefully a, a strong and productive collaboration with them, better things come. What do you think the next 10 years is going to take us, Rick? Well, I don't know. You know, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer that uh, 10 years is long enough for one guy to be chairman of an organization. So I'm, while I'm still on the board at the Research Foundation, I don't influence things like I once did. So I don't know. But I, I think that one of the things we'll do is we'll, we'll understand a lot more about parasites' impact and how treat how to how effective our treatment is, and we'll refine that as we go along. Uh, I hope that the ten years takes us to where we have more and more landowner or lessee involvement, and and there's nothing like skin in the game, and and a and a researcher. An academic researcher just doesn't have the same outlook as a guy who owns the place and spends his own money trying to have birds. So I think we're going to have more collaboration, I think. I think that's one of Brad Kubeka's objectives. I think that's one of the things that really uh, helps Tall Timbers, collaboration with their stakeholders. I think we'll have more of that here. And I think we'll refine and understand more about the parasites and our ability to influence them. Well, there you have it. Uh, again, uh, if you ever get a chance to see Rick's place, uh, you'll see why they call it the Augusta National. It really is a beautiful ranch, a very productive ranch, a historically productive ranch, and uh, he's done good things to it. Uh, with that, Gary, I'm going to return it to you in the studio, and we'll look forward to visiting with you all again next month. Hope you have a great start to your quail season. Thank you very much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Rick Snipes, for your outstanding contributions to Texas quail and for your terrific stewardship efforts in Stonewall County. If you'd like more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. There you'll find a resources page listing frequently asked quail questions, past podcast episodes, webisodes, newsletters, annual reports, and other resource materials. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us this month. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.